This is the Square Peg Podcast, starring Andrew Lawrence and a cast of mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. And now, here's your host, Andrew Lawrence. Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. And thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started, as always. The Searchlight Needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding El Pasoans. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Sines are four really, really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families during the week, and they rock out on the weekends. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com, on Facebook, and download their album on all streaming services. My guest today is B.A. Wilson. He is an Army veteran, a social worker with the Veterans Affairs in El Paso, Texas, and he's also a mixed martial arts fighter. Welcome to our podcast, B.A. Wilson. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming down. We've got a lot to unpack here. I, I'm going to try to go, um, since I really don't know you, I've met you a couple times. We've, we've uh, interacted a few times on uh, social media. And uh, in preparation for getting you down here, we've had a couple of uh, text conversations. I'm comfortable just going kind of chronological. Why don't you uh, say your full name? What does BA stand for? And, and there's an interesting meaning behind your first name. My first name or my full name is Baha'i Samore Wilson. And... Uh, my name actually means, Baha'is means, uh, in Persian, it means the glory of God. Can't say I've actually lived up to that, but that's what it means. And having a Persian name, is anybody in your family Persian? Nobody's in my f- family. Uh, no, it's not at all. Do you know how your parents came up with that? Uh, my mother and my stepfather actually came up with it. They were a part of the Baha'i faith, uh, and they loved it. They just switched the A and the I. And they put a Z on the end. Well, there's a connection. I hadn't really thought of that. But I am no. familiar a little bit with the Baha'i faith. And I know that uh, it's uh, from that area of the world, as yes, well, most religions are. But it, it, did, did Baha'i begin in Persia? You know, I cannot really tell you. I just know because everybody always asks me what it means. I just went and looked up what, what it actually means. But I can't tell you the history. Okay. Well, uh, you were born in Gainesville, Florida. Yes, in early 1970s. Yes. You're a couple years older than I am, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, you moved at a fairly young age. Are you, do, do, you, do you claim Florida? Are you a Florida guy? Are you a North Carolina guy? I mean, what, what's your... I hold loyalties to both, to be honest with you. Uh, there's some days I love Gainesville, Florida, and then there's other days I love Fayetteville, North Carolina. So I'm, I'm proud of both. And they've, for the person that you see here, they've laid foundation for each one I've gathered good things from. Um, yeah. Do you have a long family history in Florida? I do. I have a, a long family history in Florida as well as in Fayetteville. In Florida, uh, I know some of my connections or, or family history goes go back as far as like the Rosewood the Rosewood uh, incident. I'm not. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but I'm uh, not. Yeah. So back uh, probably in like uh, early 20s, 30s, where they were uh, where they were black and white cities. My family was actually one of the families uh, that stayed in Rosewood, and a couple of inc- incidents that took place caused, like, 
white uh, citizens to go in and they burned like all of Rosewood and it caused some of the migration further North Florida, which is how some of my family got to Gainesville. So we go back, we got roots tied all along uh, Florida. And you, when you were pretty young, you said, uh, you told me before that you went to go live with your father when you're about three. I, I went to go stay with my father twice. I around about three then I went back to my mother and then around about 13 is when my mother was like, hey, you need to, you need guidance from your father. It's time for you to go stay with him. And that was in Fayetteville, North Carolina? Yes. I've heard it called, was your dad in the military? Yes, he was. And, and so I'm assuming, was he still uh, on active duty when you went to live with him? Yes. Uh, my father, just a brief background, my father was enlisted. Then he switched over to the officer side of the house. Uh, I went to go stay with him probably about four or five years into his career as an officer. Uh, and so... Yeah, he was still active duty when I went to stay with him. And you stayed in, in North Carolina the whole time. Did, did he ever get deployed? Did you ever have to travel with him? He didn't. Get, the way my dad worked, because my dad worked in military intelligence and he worked with special ops at times, my dad would leave for periods of time and come back. And so um, my at the time, he was a roommate, but more like an uncle. He would watch over us as my father would go and come back. Uh, if my father thought he was going to be gone for quite a long time, then we'd go back to Gainesville, Florida. So during these times that you were living in North Carolina, you had siblings with you? Uh, my my younger brother was with me. Uh, he would come and go. I guess when he get fed up with it or he got tired, didn't want to live by my dad's rules, he would go back home to Gainesville, Florida. Now, North Carolina, uh, not quite the the farthest north of the old, old south, the old Confederacy. I would imagine growing up in the 1970s and 1980s, uh, with the military presence in in Fayetteville maybe not as bad because you do have people from other places but I'm going to imagine North Carolina is probably the kind of place where uh certainly you know other than looking in the mirror was with no secret to you that you were a a young black man growing up were, were there any issues I mean looking back uh any different than today were there were there were there race issues in North Carolina in the 70s and 80s that really stand out to you I, I tell you there were race issues in both Gainesville and Fayetteville um but I will tell you between my father and my grandfather how you handled them or how you yeah, how you conduct yourself is how we were considered um or how, how we were taught to handle those situations. You know, like uh yeah, like in school, it wasn't right out is more subtle type of racism versus outright racism like uh, I'm trying to think of a good example, but yeah, it was more like my grandfather. One of the things my grandfather taught me was a real black man doesn't even address when the N word come up because you're a black man. You, you're not that. And once you understand that, if somebody said you won't even turn around, you don't flinch. Easier said than done. At first it was, I, I tell you at when you're young, no matter what, what your color, or what your race is, when you're young, you just got in your mind, you're against the world and you want to fight. But as you grow older, you realize that your actions, and I mean every action, has a consequence, regardless of who you are. And, and the other thing that I'll tell you my father and my grandfather taught me is the color of my skin is not my problem. It is your problem because it is your perspective and, and your point of view of what you see. So if you are caught up on my skin color, and that's all you can think about, then you're the one with the problem, not me. So when I walk in a room, I, 
you know, of course you, you can see I'm black and I can see you, you know, you're white or whatever, but does it really matter about the business at hand? And it's about, about well, you've that. had a few more years of, of, of dealing with that and kind of growing into that way of looking into things. I mean, you're familiar uh, because you know my family. Uh, you know what my children look like. And, mm-hmm. you know, we just had uh, this past year in school, we had uh, my older daughter uh, for the first time was with a, her, her very good friend uh, who's a young black boy. And um, somebody said the N-word and we dealt with it. Yeah. And um, I can't say that I was as alarmed as I thought I'd be. Um I think it's going to be different the first time somebody calls somebody that word. I mean, yeah. this was a matter of uh, of the kid saying the word, I believe. Yeah. Um, now, my, my younger one, of course, looks a little bit more like you. Mm-hmm. And um, I really don't know uh, how that's going to go down the first time I hear that word with my child around. Like I said, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I grew up where I grew up. I, you know, I grew up right outside of Washington, D.C. I had a pl- plenty of black friends, um, a lot different here in Las Cruces, New Mexico. But... Um, you know, as as part of being uh, part being part of the delegation now, if you will, um, I'm I'm playing catch up on a lot of things. I, I think that's an interesting way uh, you described it. Uh, people calling you that that's not who you are. You're a black yeah. man. Yeah. Uh, again, I personally think that's easier said than done. But also, you've had uh, a couple decades to kind of grow into that. Um, growing up in Fayetteville, uh, you play sports. Yeah, uh, I played football. I played uh, well. I played football. I wrestled. I ran track. Uh, and I also did martial arts while I was in Fayetteville. Uh, I attained my first black belt about 14, 15. In what discipline? Uh, Chinese karate up under Wolf's. Uh, it was right off of Yakin. A lot of people from the 70s to the 90s, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about when they say off of Yakin's. But Wolf's Chinese karate. Was it more like a Kempo or a... Uh, it was more like a... It was a mixture between Kempo and Aikido. Okay, so striking and then and some some throwing and, and on arm locks, twisters, um, finger locks, and stuff like that. When did you get into wrestling? Uh, I got into wrestling probably about four. So I was into wrestling before I even, yeah, before I could, yeah, about four. Was, Who got you into wrestling? Was your dad a wrestler? My my cousin actually got me into wrestling. Uh, he was wrestling in the state of Florida, and he was average, so so. But he he loved it so much that he passed that love on to to me, and I just took it from that point on. And and yeah. you wrestled through high school. I wrestled all the way up to my first year of college. And we're talking about basic old school, just folk style wrestling. Folk style collegiate wrestling. Okay, you have any experience with the Greco Roman or freestyle? Yes, uh, I would do that in the summer, um, probably around junior high. I got my butt whooped, but around high school, I started I started placing. Uh, took a couple tournaments in, in high school and in, in college as well. And see, I have very little experience with the freestyle or the or the uh, Greco-Roman. I wrestled eighth, ninth grade, and then kind of had a shoulder injury. Uh, the good thing was for me, my two best friends, and, and really a lot of my friends were on the team and got along the coach. The years I spent watching folk style wrestling, I probably picked up more than the years that I actually spent doing it. <laughs> um, but again, I never never quite understood Greco-Roman. Uh, I never had much exposure to freestyle. I love folk style wrestling. Um, and and one thing I'm learning from uh, one one of my best friends who still coaches uh, back east, they really encourage the guys to do a lot of freestyle and Greco Roman in the summer because you grow as a folk style wrestler. Yeah, uh, the difference between folk style Greco and freestyle. So folk style is more about you take the guy down, you're responsible for his safety. Um, a lot less throws. Freestyle is a, another step up. Freestyle starts to focus more 
on the takedowns, like throws, single legs, double legs, and less bend on the ground. So folk style is about you take the opponent down and then you try to score points exposing their bags and stuff like that, tilts. Uh, freestyle is, hey, you want to get the guy down. If you get down there, we're not going to encourage it, but if you're down there, we'll give you some points. Where Greco is about, hey, you want to throw your opponent, you want to take them down any way possible, boom, that's where you get your points. They don't even spend time on the ground. They bring you back up as soon as you hit. So that's the basic difference. Now, you went to school, you two different schools? I went to college. College, I went to Winston-Salem State for my bachelor's, and then for my master's, I went to New Mexico State University. Okay, I thought you had mentioned something about uh, Wake Forest. I, I went to Wake Forest uh, for ROTC. So we had a uh, ROTC program, but it wasn't big enough at Wake Forest. So we ended up going to Wake Forest, which made us students at Wake Forest. But my main contributor was uh, Winston-Salem State. And Winston-Salem State, obviously, going to be in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. How yes. far from Fayetteville is that? Uh, that's about a good two hours and 30 minutes. Now, Winston-Salem State, uh, I f- believe a famous uh, famous alumnus would be Stephen, <laughs> Stephen, a., Stephen a. Smith. Yes, um, he went there, but the biggest would be Big House, uh, Big uh, Coach Gaines, Big House. Okay. Uh, he was one of the, at the time, he was one of the most winningest basketball coaches on either side. Uh, now, from, now, I don't know, but at the time when I was going there, yeah, Big House game was the, he was the man. Now, are they in the SWAC, South yes. Conference, they in? Uh, no, now they're CIAA. Okay. CIAA. Is that, um, are they, they uh, what used to be called a 1AA school or now football, champion, sub, football championship subdivision in football? Yeah, well, I think they started off in 1A and then they moved to 2 and 3A. Okay. So Now, of course, that's also, if I'm not mistaken, an HBCU, historically yes. black college or university. Mm-hmm. How much did that play into your applying there or deciding to go there? Actually, you know what? To be honest with you, I was a little naive guy, and, and I didn't even give it any thought. Uh, I was trying to – in fact, I didn't even want to go to college. My dad wanted me to go to college. Uh, in fact, I went straight to join the military right after high school, and my dad kind of nixed that. So he brought me back. I got accepted into uh, to Winston-Salem State. But, yeah, I didn't even think about that until after I got into it. And then I, I started getting into, oh, it's a historical black school, you know. Has that had any kind of your experience there, had any kind of lasting effect on, on your how you see the world or, or how you see your place in the world? Or It it definitely contributed. I got to – so I, I'm interested, now that you bring it up, so I've met two interesting people that, that were there uh, – Larry Little, who was a part of the Black Panthers, he was a lawyer. Um, so he taught a, a, he taught us a lot about law and then a lot about, you know, what the Black Panther movement was about. And then I met, uh, I forgot the professor's name, but he was from Iran at the time when they were, he got away at the time they were experiencing their high as far as like uh, people wanting to leave. And we used to call him the Iran Ayatollah, not to be, racist or anything but that's that's how he wanted us to refer to him and he would refer to us as the big mac culture uh so which was which was kind of funny at the time i'll be honest with you at the time i was kind of mad because i'm like i don't even like big macs i'm a whopper guy you know (laughs) i'm with you there (laughs) so i i took offense but not for all those right reasons i should have been offended but learning and and meeting those individuals they definitely had an impact on my life because you know my my 
Iran professor, he taught us, hey, you don't realize how good you have it here and you're wasting knowledge and talents, you know, feeling sorry for yourself. So step out and see the world from a different perspective. So you uh, joined ROTC freshman year? I, I had already, what I did, I did a slicky boy on my dad. I, I went and joined the reserves. So um, I didn't join the ROTC program until my sophomore year. Okay. And, and then I started doing that program uh, up until I graduated. Now, I want to take a short break here. Mm-hmm. This is the part of the show that you don't know about. Okay. Um, the, there are two rules to this next segment. Okay. Number one, your answer cannot be Donald Trump. Okay. Number two, once I say go, you have five, five seconds to spit out your answer. Okay. Okay. Who is it right now in the news? Uh, it can be somebody in the news news. Uh, it can be an athlete. It can be an entertainer. Somebody who you think is just an absolute clown, moron, jackass. One, two, three, go. Pence. Uh, I think he, I don't, I don't think he stood up for the American people as he should have as the vice president. Vice President Pence, there we have it, is our jabroni of the week. Our jabroni of the week is brought to you by the Cardenas Law Firm. Finding an attorney to help you with your legal issues can be rough. How do you find an effective and honest attorney without sacrificing your financial health? The Cardenas Law Firm breaks the mold by offering exceptional service without breaking the bank. Find them online at www.cardenaslawfirmllc.com or by calling 575-650-6003. Don't call some jabroni lawyer at some jabroni law firm. Call the Cardenas Law Firm. So you get into ROTC, um, three years of that. Now, you, did you get an active duty commission right I, out of college? I did. Uh, I was one of the few that did, but I actually scored higher than all my counterparts, both Winston-Salem and Wake Forest. I was one of the only two people to have a five uh, in the assessment as an officer. And and my understanding, you know, I don't have the honor of uh, – saying I'm a, a veteran, I didn't serve in the armed forces, but I work with a lot of people who have and a lot of friends who have. Um, my understanding is that it actually is pretty rare to get an active duty commission um, right out of school, right out of ROTC. That most of those are reserved for people who graduate from one of the three service academies, yes, federally, federal service academies. Um, what percentage of, of people who get active duty commissions every year actually come from ROTC programs? Uh, when I was coming through, probably about, 15 to 20 percent so it was very low that's actually larger than i would have expected so you get you get your commission what year is this uh, uh 1996 so 1996 your commission as a second lieutenant in the united states army what's your mos uh at the time it was air defense uh, branch detail to military intelligence and was that your choice was that your first choice how did that work uh my first choice was aviation i want to be a, a pilot you know so many times you go into the bar and you tell women Hey, I'm a helicopter pilot, so I was trying to live up to that. But uh, my second choice was military intelligence. So I got it, but I had to serve in air defense first before I could move on to military intelligence. Now, did you really want to be a pilot, or is that just a pull? Um, yeah, I, I definitely wanted to. I've been dreaming to be a, a Apache pilot probably since they came out with Apaches. And uh, watching my dad on Fort Bragg, and he was a military intelligence guy, I wanted to be an Apache pilot. What was it about intelligence that attracted you? Just the mindset of the part that I seen with my dad was where you had to actually what you call profiling now. So you you become the enemy and you present all the things that the enemy would do to the uh, commander, whoever the commander is, whether it's at company, battalion or brigade or even at division. 
you tell them, hey, sir, this is what I perceive that the enemy is going to do. So I like that part. It was the, the, I guess, the psychology part of being the enemy. Do you have any special language skills or uh, programming? Or what, what do you, uh, I guess my first question is languages. No special language. I, I, I didn't. I did pick up uh, a little bit of Spanish. I picked up, uh, well, I take that back. I did know sign language, but I hadn't had anybody to practice with. Uh, American Sign Language. Yes. Tell me about that. Um, my, my stepdad was deaf, so as a child, I had to pick up, like uh, a lot of times I tell people I kind of talk with my hands, I had to pick up sign language just to be able to communicate with him. And then we have a sister out of that, so she's really my stepsister, but... When, once you with somebody and spend time with them, they become their family. Uh, she speaks sign language, so I I know a little bit, but I know enough to get me in trouble. Just enough to get you in trouble. Yeah. You know the bad words, right? Oh, I know a lot of bad words. Yeah, so terrible. <laughs> so you get your commission. Where's the first place you're stationed? The first place I was stationed was uh, Hawaii. I, I went to Schofield. I went to 25th ID Schofield Barracks, Hawaii. Is that all it's cracked up to be, or? Uh, Living in Hawaii? At first, no. I mean, after, uh, for me, say, when, once I got there, I ended up going to NTC, JRTC. I went to I went to all the TC, the training centers that the Army had within the first six months. Then after that, I got to enjoy the, being on the island. It became what it was. I mean, uh, uh, you got to think, as a little boy, you'd watch it on TV, and you'd be like, I want to go to that place, so. I was fascinated with it the, uh, after I, I did all my deployments or all my training deployments. Now, you did um, post-September 11th. Mm-hmm. You had uh, at least how many deployments did you have overseas? I ended up doing uh, six to Iraq and one to Afghanistan. And how long were your deployments to Iraq? Uh, my longest was 18 months. Uh, my shortest was nine months. Okay. And um, the setup there, are you just in a big tent somewhere? or How's that uh, at first, it started off in a big tent, and then they started getting, uh, we call them chews, but they started getting trailers, and what they do was cut a trailer in half, and then if you were an officer at a certain rank, then you get one to yourself. Uh, and same thing with NCOs, you get one to yourself. Or if not, say like if you were a captain below, you would get you would share one with somebody else. Now, I've heard it said that there's not black and white or yellow or brown in the military. Everybody's green. How true is that? It's true to some degree, but you, how can I put this? You know what? I'm just put it out there. A, a lot of times I find myself being the only black officer in a room and I find myself having to carry that burden of being black. So if, if I said something a particular way, or if I didn't stand up to standard, then it was like other black officers was judged by how poorly I perform. So where my counterparts had to be good, I had to be great. Because you were the black officer. Yeah. Any issues with uh, your, your enlisted soldiers? I wouldn't imagine that it would be anything that they would say. Um, you know, the military is about following orders and being orderly and, and knowing your place and knowing your rank. And uh, especially when you're an enlisted uh, soldier, Dealing with a an officer, did you ever read between lines? Were there any soldiers who had an issue taking orders from or having a black officer in their chain of command? I, I had a few, but uh, again, I go I go back to what my 
grandfather taught me and what my dad taught me. The color of my skin is is your problem. That's your perception, however you feel. When we put on that uniform, I don't have time to address your your grievances or your petty issues. My responsibility as a leader, as a as a officer, is to bring people home. And I'm going to do that any way and any means. If I tell you to do something, there is no, hey, sir, I think this, you know, or hey, sir, don't. Like I told my NCOs, my senior NCOs, if you got an issue or a problem with something I say or do, put me to the side, let me know, and then I'll readjust fire. And that's something that I've learned um, from, from a very, very close friend who's actually retiring from the military this year after, I think, 27 years. Um, your senior NCOs are kind of responsible for getting their second and first lieutenants in, in line. And, uh, and if you're smart, when you're first commissioned, you will look to your senior NCOs for guidance on things. And here's my, I'm going to tell you, here's my input or here's my philosophy on that. Staff sergeants and sergeant first class train lieutenants all the way up to captains. E-8s or master sergeants and first sergeants train captains, which are company commanders, all the way up to, to colonels. And then from colonels, sergeant majors, they train colonels and generals up. You know, if you're not listening or paying attention to what that NCO is telling you, you're wrong. If that NCO is not teaching you, then he or she is wrong. And, and like I always tell my NCOs, if you have a bad officer, there's somewhere out there, there were three bad NCOs that let this officer get to that point. That's my philosophy. So you're getting deployed a whole bunch. Are you married with children at this time? Uh, I was married. Uh, <laughs> they didn't last too long. Uh, my third marriage, which is my the wife that I have now, I'm actually, unfortunately, I met her after. who She loves everything about the military. But my first two wives, it just... The deployments became a bit too much. And any children from those marriages? Yes. Uh, I got three three girls from my first marriage, and I got one son. Actually, I got two boys. Uh, one was a – he's not my biological, and then I had my biological. But because Javier was in my life or I was in his life at, at about five to six months, it, it, I consider him my son. Right. So you're over there in the sand um, with uh, all the other uh, officers, all the other people serving, and um, you're hanging out and you tell them, I'm going to be a social worker when I get out of the military. How does that <laughs> tell me about that? <laughs> let's, let's do the transition part here. Uh, uh, you know what? A lot of people and, and that didn't come about until like the last two years of my military career. Um, yeah, they a lot of guys and girls were like, well, sir, I don't see you as being a social worker. And I don't see you. How can I put this? Like a lot of people thought social work was about females and that was a female job. Kind of like they look at teachers and they say, oh, it's, teaching is more of a female profession. Um, but if you look at what officers do on a day to day base, they actually do social working and teaching a lot of times. Uh, you know, if the if the NCOs don't teach their, their soldiers, then it's up to that officer to teach their soldiers how to budget. Uh, so in some cases, how to do personal hygiene? Wouldn't wouldn't it? It would seem to me you go twenty years as an officer in the in the army, uh, in intelligence, probably a pretty easy transition into the into the private sector with that. You know, in something something in the intelligence field, um, you weren't interested in that. No, I, I want to get a far as far as possible away from army or anything military. 
Um, to be honest with you, I really didn't want to be responsible. I didn't want to be in a supervisor, uh, supervisory job or management. I didn't. I just wanted to be worried about self for a little bit. And something that really kind of struck me, something that you don't think of, is the military actually has social workers. Yes. And I didn't know this until my wife, when we met in about two and a half weeks before September 11th, uh, she was here at NMSU doing her master's of social work. And if I'm not mistaken, I'm, I'm pretty sure she had a classmate who was an officer. Um, I forget which branch. She was either the Army or the Air Force. And she said, yeah, she's a social worker. The military has social workers? Yeah. You just don't think of that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, you're, you're, this, uh, you're this military veteran. You, you apply for the social work uh, school here. How did you end up, let's put it this way, how did you end up in the Southwest, El Paso, Las Cruces? Uh, I, was, I was engaged to a, another person prior to my wife. So she was from El Paso. And then, uh, so let me back up a little bit. So in the military, I moved over to my functional area. Once I became a, a major, I became a information operations officer. Uh, it was kind of new in the Army. And in there, one of the people that I dealt with was like civil affairs, which is where you see social workers. That's what really turned me on to that. And then in, while I was in school, I looked for some of the best social work programs and New Mexico State popped up as in the top 50. Now, one of your instructors, somebody that I know very well, because mm-hmm. well, I'm married to her. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a term that she came up with that you're not aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I've, I've only interacted with you a couple of times. I and mean, we were talking here today, and, and uh, we'll talk in a few minutes about your, your mixed martial arts career uh, and my involvement in, in, in that area. But, um, you know, it's pretty clear that you carry yourself in such a way. You've got a very serious exterior. Um, kind of a straight face and and something i learned uh when i told my wife i actually asked her if she would reach out to you at first and see if you would be open to coming on the show uh she told me that and again you don't know this but in every class her one of her goals um outside obviously you know the obvious of of the whatever the course material was was to get you to break what she called resting ba face (laughs) i just did it and we talked about this right before she she left the house a little bit before I did today. And I told her exactly what my plan is to get you to do that. I said, because I'm going to surprise him with it. <laughs> and I've done something now that she was never able to do. Oh. <laughs> we broke resting BA face. It's a first. I got you to smile. I got oh. you to laugh. <laughs> um, but, of course, she speaks very highly of you. And um, safe to say, um, how many other men were there in the social work program at the time? It was only five of us. Okay, and how many people in the program total? Uh, in the program that I came through, it was 60. So out of 60 people, it was five guys. How many black men? Uh, two. Two? I was going to see you. surprised me there. I thought you yeah. were going to be the only one. No, no. Uh, Donnell McLeod was the second one. And if my face was terrible, then his face was way worse. Yeah? Uh, yeah. I haven't heard about him. Yeah, he didn't He didn't smile or break. He didn't break character, none. I. Yeah. Well, let's move on then. Uh, you know, the, the, the nexus or the, the way that you and I, the way I became aware of you, um, back in 2015, I started a side job with the New Mexico Athletic Commission. I worked primarily as a deputy inspector, uh, sometimes judge trainee. And I remember I was on my way to a gig, and my wife says, you know, one of my students is a fighter. And she was trying to describe you, and, and, and i I'm almost positive I had come across you at that point. I wasn't picturing you. I was actually thinking of somebody else. But um, you were actually uh, you were on some fight cards here at Southwest Brawl at the, at the convention center, right? Yes, sir. And um, I think that the I know well the one time I did work with you, 
uh, was out in Alamogordo, uh, mm. May of 2017. Um, was that your last fight? Yes, that was my last fight. Well, I, I feel comfortable saying this. There's two things. I came home and I told my, told my wife two very obvious things jumped out at me. Um, and we won't talk about how the fight went and all that. Yeah. Two very obvious things. You have a very strong wrestling background. Uh, and as somebody who has wrestled, has been around wrestling, I've been watching the UFC since 1994, um, I know what I'm looking at. Um, I do some grappling myself, do some BJJ. Very obvious that you have a very strong background in wrestling. And the other thing I noticed is you were not in shape for that fight. Yeah. Um, I didn't take that fight seriously, not to take away from my opponent, because he, he did what he was supposed to do. He came and he beat my my tail in that fight. So I, I'm, I take my hat off to him. Um, you know I have a bad habit of spreading myself thin. And so I do need somebody to, to get on me about that. Uh, and then at that time too, like I said, I had a lot, I was, I was still working on my master's program. So, but not to take anything away from the performance of my opponent at that time, he came in, he did what he's supposed to do and just, he was the better man that night. Well, and so I didn't, what I didn't know about you is your background in, in, um, what we call traditional martial arts, your, your yes, Chinese sir. karate. Uh, I knew you were a wrestler now between then and now, any chance to do work on some combatives in the military? Other than what's required, was ever is that something you did uh, on post? You know, you get done with work and go go get your aggressions out. Did you do any training when you were in the military? I did do some training. In fact, that's where I started doing. Uh, I actually went to. Uh, I took two titles in while I was in the military. Amateur titles, uh, Tama and uh, Ring Rulers. I for, I think that's the name of the organization. And this is mixed martial arts. Yes, uh, one eighty five, one seventy. Yeah, one eighty five. Uh, so I I did do some training. Uh, my my training partner was a combative expert uh daryl schoonover he actually went off to ufc contender so have a the old red spider days yeah definitely have some uh some background when it comes to some of the mixed martial arts fighters and stuff like that now of course red spider is now defunct how did you get involved with daryl's gym uh well me and daryl got involved because we were both in the service at uh fort hood and we at that time we were with jason uh i forgot jason's last name but he had Fighters Forge, uh, and Jason used to be a sparring partner for like uh, some some of the famous boxers. Uh, I was trying to think of one offhand, but he did a lot of a lot of training, and he got us involved. You know, got us interested in. So that's how me and Daryl. In fact, me and Daryl didn't even like each other when we first met. We me and Daryl fought just about every day, um, and we just grew on each other, I guess. And then, so you were you were basically here from the beginning of when Red Spider started. Yes. Uh, I came not not the very beginning. I came probably about three or four months after it started, but I was definitely coming in and out when when Daryl had the mindset because I was still active duty and I was coming from Hawaii. Now I don't know. Uh, you know, I I see Daryl a lot more on Facebook now than anywhere else. Uh, obviously, with COVID, there haven't been any events. I think I worked the last sanctioned event in New Mexico. That was on I want to say March eighth uh, up mm. at Isleta. It was. Um, I can't think of the name. Holly Holmes' uh, manager is the promoter. Uh, Lenny Lenny Frescas. Oh, okay. Uh, so there haven't been any events since then. Um, I haven't seen Daryl too much. I know he was doing some judo competition a couple of years ago. Um, I know some of the other guys from that gym. I know Randy is now training with Briggs mm -hmm. uh, down there in El Paso. Are you, are you doing, working out with them at all? Are you doing any training? I haven't trained with uh, Randy in probably about a year or two. Shame on me, bad B. Uh, me and Daryl did six months ago, and actually with Johnny, we went up to Rio Doso. Uh, that was the last 
Johnny Guillen. Yeah, Johnny Guillen. That was the last fight that I was a, a part of as far as uh, help training and stuff like that. But the rest of my time has been with Wolf's Den uh, over with Mark. Uh, and Mark has been real good to me. Uh, Mark, is, he was one of my sponsors when I was fighting. So, uh, yeah, and I'm one of the coaches over at his gym. Now, right now, um, you're working for the Department of Veterans Affairs. Yes. What's your job title? Uh, I am a TBI, Traumatic Brain Injury Social Worker. And do you do therapy or are you case managing? I do case managing. Uh, no therapy because our program is not big enough. So I do polytrauma. So any type of trauma, really, but mainly uh, traumatic brain injury. I, I will see the individual. I will make a, what I do is I case manage them. And then if they need referrals, like they need more mental health, then I refer them over to mental health. So considering we've been, uh, United States has been, I don't want to say at war, but involved in overseas conflict for almost 20 years, um, really the first uh, almost continuous engagement overseas on the, on the scale that, that we're at uh, probably since Vietnam ended, is it safe to say that most of the people you're dealing with are, are people who have suffered or, or got their brain injuries serving uh, in either Iraq or Afghanistan sometime in the last 20 years? Yeah, very safe. I mean, in fact, I think a lot of people, two things. Number one, I think a lot of times veterans won't come forward, male or female, because they're scared people will judge them if they say they got a traumatic brain injury. And then two, I think a lot of times they don't even know, they. some people don't even know they have a traumatic brain injury. Uh, and they only assume that you can get a brain injury either in an explosion or if you get hit in the head, like if you're doing mixed martial arts football or something like that. Um, but you can actually get a lot of people can experience a mild traumatic brain injury just being in the vicinities of an explosion due to the concussion. So like the wave, when it hits and it shoots out and comes back in, the wave can be just as destructive as the impact itself. Do you feel like uh, being um, a retired Army officer, being a military veteran, that you are able to understand your clients better? that you're able to build a rapport uh, better because of that experience than you would have otherwise? I think, no, I think it gives me an advantage as far as like understanding the language and that veterans are willing to drop their guard because I'm a veteran. But I think other social workers that have had more experience still have an advantage just because they have that experience. And, and yeah, I don't want to take away from that because they recognize certain things. I even refer to some of the, the social workers that I work with, they can say, hey, you know what? This person really needs this type of intervention versus uh, this. And what I mean by that, that this person may need uh, CBT versus DBT, you know? And I'll be like, oh, well, how did you come to that, you know, conclusion? And they'll say, well, just look at these symptoms as they line up. Now, how do you introduce that? Do you have your diplomas on the wall or your, your separation certificate or whatever? Do you wear your, your paracord bracelet you're wearing today? Do you say, hey, I'm a veteran, I get it? Or I think veterans recognize veterans just by the language and how they carry themselves. It's kind of like, um, yeah, like like mixed martial arts guys. You can tell when a, another fighter comes in, you know. Look at the like, ears. Yeah, you'd be like, ah, that dude's a fighter or that girl's a fighter, you know. So, and then they see some of the stuff that I might have on my, my desk or in my office. When you tell people, um, you meet somebody, you're at, at a social gathering where you're meeting new people and they ask you what you do for a living. The reaction you get when this, when this black man standing here, middle <laughs> age, says, well, I'm a social worker. 
Uh, usually they just stand there and look at me for for about thirty seconds and all. Really, you're a social worker? Wow, wow. They don't even try to hide it, right? Yeah, no, they don't. They don't hide it. And then and then if I start looking or if I get quiet, a lot of people get uncomfortable. Are you social working me? They don't even say you know. Uh, using reverse psychology are you social working me no i'm I'm just here as a friend or i'm just here to have a good time so. now you uh you're a new grandfather uh no well you have a new grandchild it's not your yes, first i'm taking yeah i okay. have a new grandchild but i am not a new grandfather i have six all together so get your hands full on christmas don't you i do but i tell you what being a grandfather is even better than being a father because you get to go home at night right yeah you can give them back when I tell you what, we're, you know, you know, the wife and I are at the other end of it. We became parents a little bit later in life. I'm 46. She's 42. We've got a 10 year old one that's almost seven. So oh, we're, yeah. I, I keep telling myself that what I lack in energy, I make up for in wisdom. <laughs> I could tell myself that all day long. I don't know how true it is. I, you know what? I will tell you between my grandkids and, and, and school, there, there's like school and work, you know, ah, you get through it and it's like, ah, you know, but when the grandkids, even though it, it, it causes a lot of energy, or you have to produce a lot of energy. It is energy that you don't realize you expend until it's over with. And you sit down. And this I know I'm getting old. When you sit down and you say, oh, I'm just going to sit here and rest for a minute. And 30 minutes later, you're like, damn, what did time go? I was asleep. Well, we're kind of coming towards the end of our time. I do want to ask you um, the news just the other day. John Jones vacated his light heavyweight UFC title, uh, possibly moving up to, to heavyweight. I think Dana White said that after uh, Stipe takes on uh, Francis Ngannou, that Jones is probably next in line. I don't think there's any doubt. Uh, there's obviously been a lot of uh, controversy surrounding him. The two names, uh, for those of us who are you know, more than the casual fan and somebody like me who's been watching for, since 1994, I, pretty easy to say the two names who come up when you're talking about the GOATs, the greatest of all time, pound-for-pound pound fighters. There are two names that come to mind, uh, GSP, George St. Pierre, and John Bones Jones. You had to make it. First of all, is, is anybody else in the conversation uh, as far as you're concerned? No, not not for me. Uh, I think both of those individuals or those fighters are so talented and they've been. And you've got to look at that. Both fighters have not done like wrestling or boxing all their lives. And they've come into the sport and have adapted to each one of those sports. Well, Jones wrestled a little bit, of, uh, I think, NAIA or, or junior college, I believe. Yes. But he, like you say, a little bit, he started late versus like some of those guys have been wrestling since they like like me since they were four. You know, I think the thing that's probably most impressive about GSP is I heard Joe Rogan talking about at some point he was actually training with the Canadian Olympic team. Again, pretty early on watching the first couple of UFCs, it became pretty obvious that it was the guys with grappling backgrounds who were who were, who were doing better and. Now that MMA has itself become a form of martial art, you can literally walk into an MMA gym and start training. Of all of the different combat sport disciplines, uh, wrestling is the one where you see the most high-level guys uh, in the big promotions like Bellator and UFC. The thing that I find so impressive about GSP is that um, he didn't do any wrestling coming up. His background was in, uh, I believe, Kyokushin Karate. Um, and that he was able to rise to the level that he was, and not not only rise to the level he he did as a mixed martial arts fighter, but again to be able to train with the Canadian Olympic team, almost trying to make the team. Well, here, here's what I'll tell you that has been impressive, and, and the thing that most people, like you say, if you're not an average follower, the transition, not just from like in wrestling, the better you are in transitioning from one 
move to the other, the better you are. So you go from single to double all in one shot. You, you realize you can't get it. But not only their transition in, in just wrestling, but their transition from wrestling to boxing, trans, wrestling to kickboxing, uh, boxing to, to throws and stuff like that. So their transition to anything or any movement has been very impressive. Like John Jones, you, you have him from behind and he hits you with an elbow. You're not even expecting that. Most guys don't even use that, you know. Um, GSP, you know, he's shooting and then all of a sudden he turns and starts kicking you. That That's the type of transition. The fluidity there is what I'm talking about. And that's what is impressive. And if you go and look at all the fighters from the first UFC to now, you will not see that level of transition throughout. So I'm going to put you on the spot now. Who is it? Is it GSP or Bones? Who's the greatest of all time? You know, I'm I'm gonna be honest. I'm gonna go with GSP, uh, and the reason I go with GSP is simply because Jones has been shown to have flaw in his mindset. When he trains, he's good, but you got it. The consistency is what I look at, and GSP has been the most consistent throughout. There you have it, BA Wilson. Thank you so much for coming down and spending your time being um, one of the very first guests on this podcast. Um, good luck to you. Thank you. Any parting shots on your part? No, I just say, hey, thank you for having me. Uh, God bless and take care of yourself. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it. Our guest next week on the Square Peg podcast is the director of the New Mexico Transgender Resource Center, Adrian Lawyer. Please join us on Tuesday, September 15th for that episode. Thank you. This has been an episode of the Square Peg Podcast, starring Andrew Lawrence and his cast of Mold Breakers, Trailblazers, and Takers of Roads Less Traveled. Until then, we'll see you on the next Road Less Traveled? <laughs>